This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Happy Hip Hop 50th. Middle age for rap. Uh, it it, it didn't, <laughs> se- didn't seem like we would get here for a while, but we made it. We made it. The AARP card comes this year, you know. <laughs> hey, hey, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. On August 11th, 1973, hip-hop was born at a house party in the Bronx. Since then, it's been remade in the image of cities all around the world. To celebrate, I'm taking us on a road trip through the regions that have shaped and transformed what hip-hop is today. And no one knows the regionalism of hip-hop quite like Sheldon Pierce from NPR Music. Each little community that has assimilated rap into its culture has then gone on to turn that thing inside out and give it its own personal flavor. We'll come back to Sheldon later on, but for me, the first time I really understood regionalism was when I first stepped onto the campus of Howard University. Hanging out on the yard, I couldn't get over just how different everyone styled themselves depending on where they were from. There were the Cali girls in their silk presses despite the humidity. (laughs) The PG County girls in their poetic justice braids. Kids from Atlanta and Detroit Gucci down to the socks. Grab the camera, grab the camera! And New York boys in crisp denim, fresh white tees, and sneakers. The gangsters in D.C. were wearing, like, sweaters tied around their waist. Like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, and I was like, dang, like, I wish I could do that in the town because it gets cold when the fog comes in. But the gangsters don't do that in, in the Bay Area. That's Pendarvis Harshaw. He's a friend of mine from my Howard days and a native of Oakland, California. And I'm dressing like I'm still in the town. Uh-huh. We go to a party and I had, like, some glasses with the lenses poked out. Uh-huh. And I remember people, like, looking at me like, who is this weird dude? <laughs> These days, Penn is a culture reporter and host of the podcast Right Nowish out of KQED. And he's here because this regionalism meant more than just fashion. It also showed up in the rap we listened to. And Penn has spent years reporting on one scene in particular that exploded out of the Bay Area in the mid-2000s. Hyphy. Whether or not you know the term hyphy, you probably know the song. Today, we're looking at how local scenes made up hip-hop's mainstream. And, in the case of Hyphy, what gets lost when the regional style becomes part of the global melting pot. Pendarvis Harshaw, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure. We went to Howard University together. I don't even think either one of us had aspirations necessarily of working in radio at that time. Nope. No. <laughs> nope. Nope. And now here we are. You and I were at Howard at the same time when hyphy music went from being like a local subculture to being like a global phenomenon. And it was like new to me at the time. But I remember 
everybody going up for Tell Me When to Go. That is a classic hyphy track from E-40, who is also from the Bay. Uh, uh, but before we get too far, how do you explain the word hyphy and the hyphy movement to people who have never heard of it before? Hyperactive energy, rebellious to a fault. Hmm. Hyphy as a word comes from just like, I remember it as a kid walking down the street in East Oakland and we would walk in the middle of the street because we knew at times dogs would get loose and be like, oh yeah, you walking through Funktown, watch out, they got hella hyphy pit bulls out there. So walk in the middle of the street. Hmm. And hyphy was, it was a negative thing. It was about like badass youngsters who just didn't listen or really just hyperactive energy and usually in a negative way. And so when it gets commercialized, it gets this like layer of like goofiness and fun and free spirited, Mm. which is all there for sure. The hyphy movement was more or less a product, something um, that was commercialized. It takes the dancing, the slang, the culture, the fashion and packages it and makes it digestible for people not from the region. Hmm. So I wonder, like you were young, like it seemed like prime age when hyphy was everywhere. What is the most hyphy memory that you have? <laughs> That's a crazy question. <laughs> the most hyphy memory that I have yes. has to be going to a house party and there's a woman grinding on me and I'm against the wall and she essentially pushes me through a wall. What? In in, in the house party. Yeah, like the, the drywall. <laughs> the hyphiest part of it all is that I'm hella small. I'm five five, right? <laughs> but like she like backing she backing that thing up to the point she like pushes me through the wall. Like there's a, a hole in the wall. And so it's a house party at one of my friends' houses, and I don't want to ruin the party. So I pull my bigger friend in front of that hole to cover it up. And he sees what happens and he grabs the same girl and starts dancing with her and makes the hole bigger. And so yeah. <laughs> that was hella hype. <laughs> you had a real Kool-Aid man moment there. <laughs> <laughs> Kool-Aid man for sure. For sure. That's fun. It's energetic. It's a little, you know, destructive. The energy, the music, the vibrancy. Talk to me about the whole hyphy scene. Like, take me back. Like, what was that scene like at that time for people who weren't there? Yeah, that that house party, right? It's fun. It's goofy and all that stuff. That's dangerous. Like, we in the middle of the dubs. It's called the murder dubs is the name of the neighborhood, right? Mm. And, like, living on that edge has always been a thing of it. And so even the sideshow culture... The fact that it's illegal adds some type of exhilaration to it all. Wait, so some people might not know what sideshows are. Could you explain them oh. quickly so we can get an idea of it? Sideshows are car shows. And I'm not talking about just your regular, like, drive slow and show off your car car show. Mm-hmm. You could have the ugliest car with the most powerful engine where you rev it up, come into an intersection, swing a couple donuts or figure eights or even just burn out and, and get out of there and kind of show off in front of folks. The sideshow usually has a, an audience gathered around. Right. And um, that that audience could come usually at the the let out of a club. People, you know, race down the strip Mm -hmm. to an intersection in East Oakland and kind of commandeer it, really take it over and turn up for, you know, until the cops come pretty much. You know, people when people talk about the creation of hip hop in New York, they talk about how noisy the city is. Being on the train constantly kind of creates this backdrop, this thumping, this endless noise so that the music kind of naturally had to be influenced by it. It kind of had to match it and be so bombastic because New York is so intense. 
But then like on the other coast, when I think about like LA hip hop and G-Funk, it makes so much sense to me coming from the Detroit area because we drive everywhere. And the idea of being in a car, you want a smooth ride and you want something smooth to listen to. I don't know. I wonder like how was the location so crucial to the sound of hyphy. Very much so. The way the streets are made in Northern California, they're so wide, they invite you to swing your car in them, you know? Like, you couldn't have sideshow <laughs> culture in Philadelphia where the streets are narrow, you know? Um, and so I talked to one of the the statesmen of hip-hop uh, in Northern California, Keek the Sneak, mm-hmm. and he said that, that, like, yes, that's what separates it, is that we make music specifically for the cars, Heavy mm. bass lines, things that you can ride around waking your neighbors up to. I don't put that on, that's my word. I don't think they know, that's my word. I don't put that on, that's my word. You know, Hyphy was born a very local scene. Um, Hip hop scholar S. Craig Watkins describes that era leading up to 2006 as a time when, quote, many young Californians have been pushed to the brink. You were a young Californian at that time. What were you and your friends and your peers on the brink of? Like, what was going on at that time that made life tough? Yeah, okay. So, elements. Lack of media attention for the region. You have to imagine Northern California hadn't really got national acclaim since Pac died, right? Or, Mm. like, I got five on it. Um, And so, there's, like, a a 10-year gap before... E-40 comes back with Tell Me When To Go and Too Short right. drops Blow The Whistle. Right. And so that, that lack of media attention, people were hungry. And this is this place is saturated with artists. A lot of independent artists, a lot of entrepreneurs, people who feel like they're worthy to be on the level of any other artist that's coming out of New York, Atlanta, or L.A., right? Mm-hmm. Secondly, you have the black population in Oakland increased every decade from the 1950s until the year 2000, and then it stopped. And then black folks were being pushed out to the suburbs. So you have this depletion of the black community and folks being more widespread. Right. And folks being like, yo, like I'm losing what home is. Changes in demographics also very frequently bring changes in policing approaches, too. I imagine that that affected things as well. Yeah, there was a crackdown on sideshows. When I was a teenager, like they announced that you could get your car towed for just parking two blocks within the sideshow area. I was oh. like, dang, what if it's just happening in my neighborhood? Right. What do you mean? The sideshow, they want to shut us down. When we like something on air corner in the town. Police mad, the streets is wild. Three o'clock in the morning and the beats is and throughout that year, Oakland experienced 148 homicides. Oh my gosh. And so if I didn't know somebody, then I knew somebody who knew somebody who was getting killed and buried. Mm-hmm. Like, talk to me about some of the music or songs or music lyrics, music videos from that time that kind of show that aspect, like the things that sort of had, as Craig Watkins put it, had people feeling as if they were living on the brink. The piece that I'm working on really centers around this video. I'm laughing. This video of uh, Stomper, the A's mascot. He's a big, gray elephant. And he's at an E-40 record release party in 06. And Mm. he's dancing out in the parking lot. Just like goofy dancing. It's a big, goofy, gray (laughs) elephant, right? Yeah. I filmed this back in 06. And I'm like, there's a lot to unpack here. Because he's dancing and there's people dancing around him who have... 5X white tees on that are airbrushed that say RIP across the chest. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you don't think that kid isn't mourning? You know, he's out there dancing and having fun and smiling, mm-hmm. but he has RIP with his friend's name across his chest. And I'm listening. I'm like, wait, he's dancing to E40's So Happy to Be Here. Hmm. I'm Hard just times. Happy to be the struggle. 
which is a track off of um, my ghetto report card and the album itself is fun up tempo high energy but this one cut is e40 sitting down and being like man so many people not here like i'm i'm just happy to be here you know i'm just happy seeing this elephant dance all goofy to it while that song is playing in the background it's like that's it right there that's the problem people think that the hyphy movement is all fun and goofy but really like this is people expressing the trauma that they've been through and the fact that they're still here the e40 song i mean that's a song about survivor's remorse you know yeah like survivor's guilt. I think it wasn't survivor's remorse. It was just straight survival mode. Mm. How do I get away from this, you know? And looking back at the time now, mm-hmm. <laughs> I look at photos and I have the same button up and Steve Madden shoes on at a funeral that I do at a club event. And I'm just like, wow. There was no there was no separation between the mourning and the partying, you mm. know? We're talking about sideshows. I remember seeing people in Buicks on their dashboard. They would have RIP pamphlets from the service, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. the handbill. And they'd have that in the front of their car as they're swinging donuts and partying. A part of the survival was mourning and celebrating all in one. And in reflection now, now looking back at it, mm-hmm. I see how unique it was to the Bay Area. And I see how it's not too far-fetched. Like going back to New Orleans, like that's what second lines are about, right? Right. You're celebrating right. and you're honoring the, the deceased, you know? And so it's not unheard of. I just think that our culture is looked at as like, oh, yeah, hyphy movement. That was fun and goofy. I'm like, no, there's more to it. It's more than just shaking your dreads. You know, it um, It also kind of reminds me of how, like, other subcultures find ways to express grief through ways that aren't necessarily traditional but still make total sense. Like, I think about how much of a club hit Janet Jackson's Together Again was in the 90s as, like, a response to her losses, her friends from the AIDS crisis. Like it became an anthem for that crisis. And people were coming together on dance floors and being with each other, trying to almost like move through the grief together. I love that song. So good. Love, love. That's probably top three Janet songs in my book. Coming up, what happens when regional music made in response to local grief goes global? Plus, how the internet changed regionalism and rap and what that means for its future. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it, 
with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. To be a little personal, recently, uh, a couple months ago, a friend of mine passed away. And actually today, tonight, I'm going to the memorial service. I hadn't experienced this type of grief before, um, having somebody so young and so close to me pass away. And it's been so different to actually move through the ceremony of it, whether that is having a memorial service or whether that is sharing space with friends and dancing and crying together. I think for so many of us, the past three years, almost four years, three and a half years, have been a period that has lacked a lot of those communal grieving moments. And I've really realized in the past couple of months how necessary they are to honor the person, but also to like feel like a human being again. My condolences on Thank passing you. of your friend. I'm learning it now myself. These are the elements of processing the grief and the trauma. And these are the healthy ways to do it. The dancing in particular. When people think of hyphy dancing, they're like, oh, yeah, go dumb, go stupid, shake your dreads. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, there's, there's this thing called turf dancing. Turf dancing is like boogaloo pop lock strutting telling stories almost pantomime on beat and most often those stories are about people who've passed and so there's this one really popular video called turf dancing in the rain where there's a group of kids on a corner in east oakland Mm -hmm. honoring their fallen friend while turf dancing out publicly and it's a beautiful video It's a great way to honor somebody's story. And physically, they're getting that energy out of their body, you know? Like, Mm. all that stress is built Mm. up. Your body holds that stress. So in order to get that stress out of you, get out there, sweat, do moves, be appreciated. There's nothing like you doing a dance move and people clapping for you and how that can help rebuild you after an experience that has downed you. Mm. It's really important. We knew it, but we didn't verbalize it back then, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, grief is kind of seen as being this, like, straight forward process where you're supposed to go through and you follow these steps, like the Cooper Ross method or something like that. You go Mm -hmm. through and you follow these steps and you come out fine on the other end of it, but it doesn't always look like that. It doesn't always look like a progression, right? And also like you don't come out fine on the other end. You you come out different. Um, You come out new. Yeah, for sure. you, You talked about how important it was that the hyphy movement's rise coincided with the rising popularity of YouTube. And suddenly people in other parts of the country were exposed to these dances and artists and slang and sideshows. How did the role of budding social media platforms like YouTube change the hyphy scene and its reputation? I think it both benefited and was the detriment of the hyphy movement. I think back to the ghost riding a whip, mm-hmm. Critty Bo. A guy from West Oakland, he's credited for creating it, Ghost Riding the Whip. And it was something that was like real, real local. It was something that folks in Oakland did and it spread throughout the Bay. And then when it gets on YouTube, you start seeing kids out in the suburbs do it. 
and you start seeing these goofy videos of people messing up doing it because their car is on a hill and they don't know how to <laughs> properly do it. And so um, I'm laughing, but like that is the spread of culture and it is uh, culture being diluted as well, hmm. where the reason why Critty Ball was ghost riding the whip because he was essentially mourning and that was his way of doing it. And then when the kid from the suburbs is doing it, he's doing it because he saw it on E-Bombs World or YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's not just the hyphy movement that has experienced this. I think, again, hip-hop has experienced this, where hip-hop mm-hmm. started in the Bronx. And it was this thing. It was done for this reason. And it has definitely been diluted over the 50 years. And it's changed. And it's grown. And there's been some benefits to that spread. I love artists. Like, one of my favorite artists right now is from Europe. Like, Lil Sims is like dope yeah. you know what i'm saying yeah, like, yeah yeah and i love the spread of hip-hop and i could see how it's been detrimental as well and that is largely on the shoulders of social media the thing is i think i, I with that i think a lot of people who are not from that area i mean i saw it as like a fun dance you know what I'm saying? i saw it as like a fun dance fun music fun partying scene but kind of having a flat read. Flat read is a great term to use. That's really good because that's what I'm saying. There's more dimensions to it. Mm. One last question. Do you still go dumb? <laughs> Do I still go Do dumb? Do you? Yeah. <laughs> when my body allows me to. <laughs> it doesn't happen as often as it used to. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, well, Penn Darvis, it was so great to see you, Penn. This was so wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. That was Pendarvis Harshaw, a culture reporter for KQED. His essay on hyphy and grief will be out in September. Coming up, we zoom out and look at how regionalism has made hip-hop what it is today. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hyphy is just one of many local scenes that make up hip-hop. My next guest, Sheldon Pierce, is an editor for NPR Music. And he says the internet has totally warped the distinction between the local and the global. I sat down with him to chat about how that happened and what that means for the future of rap. 
Sheldon, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you so much for having me. How did regionality shape hip-hop from the very beginning of its history? It really starts, even from the beginning in New York City, the kids are pretty much like fighting across boroughs for their representation. It's funny because rap at its core and hip hop culture in general is like a sort of competitive art. Hmm. You think about break dancing, you think about DJ battles and that sense of like identifying with who you are and who's around you, where up the block you hang out and who you're hanging out with Mm -hmm. was sort of core to the way that these kids were like thinking about the music that they were making and ingesting. What's a song that you most feel represents your regional scene that you like first became attached to? I'm a DMV boy. Hey. I grew up in and around the DMV. Beat my, your my feet. Parents, my parents are from <laughs> Norfolk, Virginia. They, mm-hmm. they spent most of their life there. My mom and my aunt grew up there. So from Virginia Beach, it was always Get Your Freak On. That was sort of represented the weirdness that was coming out of Virginia Beach with Timbaland and Missy and the Neptunes. That Chesapeake Bay, Norfolk, Virginia Beach area turned out to have been very fertile ground (laughs) for like all of hip hop. I'd love to hear from you about that specific regional flavor. Like how did you see the regional flavor of Virginia Beach and that area inform its rap music? In Virginia Beach specifically, you see how a really tight-knit community of friends can, in their own right, just change the entire landscape of a music industry. Mm. It's like Timbaland and Chad Hugo and Pharrell Williams, who were in the group The Neptunes, and of course Missy Elliott. All of these people are friends in the late 80s, early 90s, Mm. just moving around this scene. They know each other. They're all trying to make it happen. It's only in sort of like rotating around one another that they are able to make it happen. Timbaland and Pharrell and Timbaland's friend Magoo were actually in a group together in high school. They called the group Surrounded by Idiots, which lets you know (laughs) what they were thinking about the Chesapeake Bay area at the time. But it also sort of tells you about their mindset. Like they are sort of eager because of the place that they come from Mm -hmm. to see the borders beyond. They're like, this place is sort of ordinary. Everybody else around us is ordinary, but we come from here too, and we are not ordinary. So let's represent that. And it's like, you can hear it in the music that they were making even then. Through the late 90s, early 2000s, they really start to push rap in just the weirdest directions. They start to warp the dimensions of rap into pop, into R&B. Timbaland had already been working with Aaliyah, of course, at that time. And it's like, soon enough, their stuff starts shaping the dimensions of sound to the point where you get like a Neptune's credit on a Britney Spears record. And then all of a sudden, it's like the floodgates open from there. Things have become so blurred that rap is pop. And they had a huge hand in pushing that door open for the rappers who would follow. Absolutely. 
Obviously, things have changed a lot since 50 years ago, you know, when hip hop was birthed in New York City. This strong regionalism in rap, like, when did that regionalism start to change? And how did you see that reflected in the music? Yeah, regionalism, I always tell people it never really goes away, but the internet sort of shifts its locus a little bit Hmm. and also shifts the way that just people interact with one another across scenes. In the blog era, everybody can basically upload their songs onto the internet and be heard from wherever they are. So you start to see a bit of a disconnect from regionalism to the internet there. The streaming era takes it to another place where it's like all music is now filtered through this one funnel, mainly like the playlist economy. And so you start to see a bit of more of a flattening of sounds from that. And you get like artists who are post landscape, like a a Travis Scott Uh. or like a Lizzo artists who are specifically from places that you would think of as rap hotbeds and they make rap music but it doesn't necessarily sound like the music of that region. It has like a lack of regionality, really. Like their music sounds smooth, very slick. But it doesn't have that sort of signature tell that that a regional sound has. But I, I also say that a lot of the artists on the internet are specifically of regions, and it's just that their region had such a previously defined sound that what they're doing seems at odds with what came before. You think of Odd Future, mm-hmm. of course, which was a big Tumblr movement. The big eared bandit is tossing all his manners in a bag and wrapping them in some random rap bandages, tossing them in That collective was made up of kids who live in Los Angeles. Right. People also like to think about SoundCloud, especially the SoundCloud movement of the late tens being disconnected from any grassroots base, but really all of that stuff is in the image of Raider Clan, Denzel Curry. Rappers from South Florida, like the heavy bass boosted sound. And a lot of the rappers who ended up becoming core to that movement are from Florida. So it's like, it's a lot of that stayed local, even as these scenes become harder to trace, you can still see the work at play. What you're talking about right now sounds like a lot of young people bumping up against each other, borrowing from each other, and kind of bringing that back to their own sort of local internet spheres, as well as like (laughs) local real life spheres. But then I also think about big artists. I think about Drake. (laughs) Drake is somebody who, I mean, how many different versions of Drake yeah. can there be? I mean, I think even a couple of weeks ago, there was a really viral moment of him where I really wanted to pull him aside and just be like, has anyone reminded you recently <laughs> that you're not Caribbean? But you right. know, when you think about how Drake has, I guess you could say, borrowed from grime aesthetics or Southern hip hop aesthetics. And yeah. like, I'm not gonna lie, Drake's uh, like forays into reggaeton have actually been pretty good. <laughs> Nobody please at me on that. But I mean, what about someone who's at that level who, you know, like Drake's from Toronto, but he's tapping into all these regional sounds. What does that mean? I think Drake is an interesting case where he understands rap regionalism and he also understands rap as mass market commodity. And a lot of times he is trying to use the former 
to greater influence his hold over the genre in the latter. He loves to sort of dip his toe into various sounds, into various accents, in a lot of ways to keep his own music relevant. But in another more generous sense, there is a part of him that loves taking an artist from a specific scene who is doing something really interesting and lifting them up and saying, hey, this person is doing something cool. Mm. I think about him taking an artist like Block Boy JB and the producer Take Heath, who are both from Memphis, mm -hmm. and sort of giving them national platforms. But it's through Drake that you can sort of get a sense of how quickly the regional can become the global. Hmm. To that thought, are there also ways that the internet has bolstered regional rap communities? Yeah, definitely. I think specifically about the drill movement of 2012. Drill is sort of this distinctly Chicago product born of the local high schools. Artists like Chief Keith. Katie Got Bands. Katie Got Bands. I miss my girl. Yeah. Money, my team, Katie, who I'm rocking with. You drilling At the time, people felt it was nihilistic, but really it was realistic to what was being experienced in those projects. It was definitely stark, a lot of dark sounds, a lot of creeping synths, heavy underlying bass vibrating and underscoring dark lyrics about the violence in that city. It hadn't really left that region until a dude named D Gaines, who was a rapper himself, but also a videographer, was shooting most of the videos of these kids just hanging around on their blocks or shirtless in, in rooms together. His page all of a sudden becomes its own like pin drop for Chicago rap on the internet. But over the course of the 2010s, we see it sort of migrate to New York. A group of kids in Brooklyn start to pick <laughs> up this thing. Pop Smoke, welcome to the party. Baby, welcome to the party. Huh? I hit the boy up and then I go skate in a Rari. Or Ice Spice Princess Diana. You can hear the evolution from Chicago Drill. But these artists, of course, have just such a distinctly New York style and swagger. And they talk in the lingo that is on the blocks in New York. It's so specifically of that place. I wonder, what does having a scene actually mean? Like, what does it give us? Whether it's a scene online or in person, like, why are scenes important? Well, first of all, it lets us know that this music that we enjoy is not like a byproduct of corporate enterprise. Like <laughs> real people on the ground are making this stuff. It is like born of their like real experiences. We get a sense of how, where you're from, how, who you're hanging out with influences the kind of things that you create in the broadest sense what is really beautiful about art, the specificity that can come out of it. And it's only from community through this camaraderie that you end up getting these 
little pockets of sound that feel like they are of a specific place and represent a specific people and resonate with like people in a, in a town who maybe haven't felt like the thing at the national level resonates with them. Hmm. A lot of this regionality, whether it's like regional beefs, regional collaborations, <laughs> they've really kept hip hop alive for the last 50 years. Yeah. You wrote in your piece about the next 50 years of rap. Yeah. And that you're seeing the groundwork laid for a rap dystopia. <laughs> what does that mean? And, and please describe what does that look like for you? <laughs> I'm looking around at this moment and I'm seeing like sort of the worst case scenario of what could happen to rap. I mean, rap has always been a semi-commercial enterprise, but I never wanted to become a corporate enterprise where it is just a thing that is mass marketed and used for ad dollars. I'm never worried about regionalism itself, but I do think there is a threat of a flattening of regionalism losing the specificness of where they're from in the wash of the internet in trying to sort of beat the algorithms and rise to the surface. There is like a problem that you do see with a lot of younger artists where they will start out with a very distinctive style, but in trying to reach as many listeners as possible, they change and change and change and change until it's like the thing that they have is completely separate from the thing that they were. You see it a little bit with Lil Uzi Vert in their most recent music. Their stuff has always been sort of representative of the Philly spitters of the past, especially if you listen to like Eternal A Take and a song like Pop. That is representative specifically of Philly rap. But if you listen to the pink tape, it's sort of cosplaying the sounds of like turn of the millennium rock and new metal. And it's sounds devoid of the stuff that made Uzi interesting in the first place. In the transition to becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, sometimes you can lose that flavor. And I'm worried that as we continue to be a web focused music culture, that will happen to more and more artists. Hmm, that is a really interesting opinion. I hadn't thought about that that way. You know, we've been talking about the rap dystopia. I wonder to you, what would be a rap utopia? Yeah, for me, rap has at its core been a genre that is supposed to speak to and for the marginalized and speak truth to power whenever it can. I don't think it's always been as progressive as it claims. This thing is catered specifically to black straight men and a few white straight men. Um, yes, and it's time <laughs> to aggressively. It's, yes. it's time to it's time to break those walls down. They we had a good run uh, I, as a black man. I can say we had a good run at the top <laughs> of rap. <laughs> it was nice. It's time to widen the range of perspectives. That means becoming more inclusive, more intersectional means being welcoming to more voices. And I think when you do that, you end up getting a, just a broader spectrum of creativity. And who mm. knows what kind of music will be produced once we stop thinking from such a limited perspective. 
Sheldon, thank you so much for coming on today. This was so great. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great time. Thanks again to Sheldon Pierce. You can catch all of NPR's reporting on Hip Hop's 50th at NPR.org. The series is called All Rap is Local. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hi, Brittany. This is Gia in Berlin, Germany. And the topic that I'm interested in is the rise or resurgence of festival slash rave culture. Thanks. Hi, Gia. Thank you so much for calling in from Berlin. I feel like you being in Berlin, I should be asking you. (laughs) Because it feels like Berlin is very much a longtime center for techno electronic music and also just like underground parties rave dance culture but to give you my thoughts first of all I feel like some of this is definitely informed by the fact that like after being in various states of lockdown for the past few years people are ready to get outside another thought I have about that is just how much like if you go out to the club there's like less dancing just overall the most social dancing I see now is on TikTok which kind of keeps people very separate the digital screen is mediating like the social dance aspect and now if you look at a lot of the most popular hip-hop it can be really good music, but some of this stuff is just depressing. And if you're looking at a lot of like the more popular R&B, it can be beautiful, but like breathy and vibey. Nobody wants to dance to that. I'm just being honest. So the music that people are making now is not conducive to dancing. So I think that like rave culture, I think is really taking roots because you can't go there and stand around <laughs> and just look at your phone. You can't go there and just talk to your friends. If you're at a party, if you're at a rave, You have to dance. Also, I think there's like a political aspect to it as well. Like when I look at the techno or rave scenes that grew in the 70s and 80s in either Germany or from a scene I'm more familiar with in Detroit, Germany had experienced a lot of repression politically at that time. And in Detroit, there was an intense economic downturn. And I think that climates like those greatly contribute to the kind of art, music scene, club scene that exists in a city at a given point in time. When you look at where we are right now, a lot of us are feeling an economic crunch. And it's also pretty evident that there is a streak of conservatism and conservative politics across the Western world right now. And in times that feel tough and potentially repressive, depending on who you are, you know, it always feels good to get up and move your body and shake your groove thing with your friends. So I don't know. Those are my thoughts. But girl, I want to hear from you. You have the answers over in Berlin. So thank you so much for your call. And to all of you listening, I want to know what you want to talk about too. Anything from the biggest pop culture story of the week to the newest bangers to the TV show everyone is talking about. If there's something everyone in your world is going on about, record a quick voice memo with your first name, location, and the topic, and send it to ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. I cannot wait to hear what you want to talk about. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. Our editor is Jessica Plachek. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. 
Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sangueni. Our Senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman. All right. That's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. The Bullseye Podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye Podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR.